Hello there, and welcome to Music Speaks. This podcast dedicates itself to help music impacts people's lives. We have two co-hosts for this episode. My name, of course, is Sean Rancunas. My friend in his white t-shirt, as always, is my friend Hunter Sagona. And we believe that many people have a playlist that makes their life unique through music. We pride ourselves on building upon our musical knowledge with our future guests, jamming to incredible music. Talk about a wide variety of artists and composers. Dot, 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 dot. Hunter likes to say we got paid for the dot, but everything in between that sentence. With that said, we'll be discussing Percy Granger's, in a nutshell, his symphonic suite today. According to the gnomes at Wikipedia, the first movement, Arrival Platform Hamlet, was originally written in 1908 for solo viola as one of Granger's earliest works. Uh, In his words, the Hamlet, which he defined as a little dirty to hum, or sorry, little ditty to hum, not dirty to hum. I mean, it could be if you'd like. Um, came from awaiting the arrival of a belated train bringing one's sweetheart from foreign parts. The sort of thing one hums to oneself as an accompaniment to one's tramping feet as one happily, excitedly paces up and down the platform. And you can tell that he is of British origin, even though I think he was, what, Australian? Australian, yeah. Yes, uh, but of, of, of uh, the English persuasion because they use the C impersonal, in case you were wondering, which is the one... Um, for those grammar nerds out there. Um, uh, Anthony Bateman of The Guardian ranked it as one of the top ten best pieces inspired by trains. The second movement, Gay But Wistful, is subtitled as a tune in a in a popular London style, referring to a music hall, a popular genre of entertainment in Victorian England. The staff uh, description for its all-music entry, uh, Dave Lewis notes that the piece... While clearly English in style, had a jazz-influenced harmonic practice. Sorry, jazz-inflected harmonic practice. I'm just botching this all up. (laughs) Similar to the future approach of jazz composer Duke Ellington, which actually I had a similar thought about when I was listening to it. Not specifically Duke Ellington, but I actually had that thought about jazz. And unlike the other three movements, Granger did not provide program notes for pastoral which is the longest movement of the work, lasting approximately 10 minutes. It is noted that the standout piece in this work being an early representative in his interest of atonal and free music, in which he shied away from traditional harmony and form. Musicologist Paul Fleet cites the movement as an early example of metatonality, as a piece which sits between the boundaries of tonality and atonality. The fourth and last movement is the Gumsucker's March, originally titled Cornstalk's March, in early versions of the score. According to Granger, the title makes reference to Australians from the state of Victoria, where Granger was from. Residents would often suck the the leaves of gum trees to stay cool in the summer. This movement was later arranged for band by the composer in 1942 and has become the standard repertoire for the medium. And off we go, talking about some more Granger. And we're going to take a break now. And remember that if you would like to support this podcast, please go to Spotify for Podcasters. You can also search Music Speaks Podcasts on multiple listening platforms, such as Apple Music, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Spotify, and many, many more. And in the spirit of Percy Granger, here's a line from Percy from Harry Potter, or about him now. Percy wouldn't recognize a joke if it danced naked in front of him wearing Dobby's tea cozy. 
said Ron Weasley, responding to Hermione. Even if they'll say, you know, like we talked about with Beethoven, he was like, I was not trying to compose a scene of the countryside. It's it's uh, absolute music. It's not programmatic. Um, and we're like, no, you're lying, Beethoven. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> Thank he, you. Obviously. Oh God. Right? I mean. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but uh, Granger, you know, we you mentioned how this particular section has no um, it doesn't. Uh, write-up. It has no... Oh. Um, program notes. This is my favorite movement. Mm-hmm. I, I told you this already. Um, I'm really, actually, I'm really excited to see how you reacted to this movement because of its meta tonality, mm-hmm. um, because of its atonal and free music nature. And I, we're starting to see contemporary pieces be popped yeah. in there. And it's like, it's like, yeah, this is so good. It's like you're talking about 20th century and, and it's uh, it's the crux of the the new age mm-hmm. of of modernity and stuff like that, and it's it's really really freaking fracking cool. And I, I love that there is this sense of of growth through it the entire thing. But before I gush, I'll let you keep talking. Tell me, did you did you like this piece, or what? Did you have any problems with it? What did you think? Well, let, let me just say before we start, you know, you mentioned the early concepts of, of modernism and, and the modern era of composition. The one note that is on the score is for my dear comrade in art and thought, Cyril Scott. Okay. Like there's no, there's nothing else other than that. And Cyril Scott was also a composer. And I think he was also a writer. Um, and he was writing music at the same time that, it wasn't the same per se, but I think he was doing along the same lines of trying to take something more uh, traditional, incorporate traditional elements and bring it to the forefront of, of modern music to something that the modern listener might find interesting while still recognize, you know, pieces that were like, oh, that's that folk tune or that, oh, that sounds like something from my country, you know, so whatever it happened to be. Yeah. Um, cause uh, Scott was English, whereas he was, um, Granger's Australian. So uh, same empire at the time, but you know, different parts of the world. Uh, but to your answer your question, I did like this movement. Um, I don't know whether it was my favorite movement of the piece or not. Um, I, I, I did like each of them. The second one might honestly be my favorite movement of them, but I did really like this movement, and I had the most notes, obviously, from this one. But the first thing I had to comment on after the 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 direction there, or the um, after the what do you call it, the note, was what are these directions that he puts in his music? <laughs> these like uh, the cues, restful and dreamy, but wayward yes. in time. And you're like, like who who does that? He's definitely an artsy guy. And I think very because then you'll see things scattered throughout the music like um, loud and slightly. It's very direct, um, calmly. Where's the other one that was really weird? It it comes up later where it's just it makes like you know exactly what he's talking about, but you're like, who would ever word it like that? Um, <laughs> that's, that's fe- oh, that's what it is. Feelingly. Oh yeah, that's right. Feelingly. Um, so there's I have to I have to laugh at that. Yeah. But in terms of the actual music. So I really, I think it's interesting that this uh, section happens to be the most significant section and the only one that seems, it seems the least directed, you know what I mean? In terms of no program notes. Um, I love, where is it? Do you like the line? I do really like, 
Do you like the line where he writes gradually, quick, and slightly? <laughs> that is funny. Yeah. Um, I it's in measure. Uh, what is that? Ten, eleven. It's eleven. Starting in eleven. There's this sustained oboe that plays over everything else. So there's like steel marimba and piano and uh, was a violin one and cellos. But there's an oboe being held. I think on an A. What is it? Is it an A? Yeah, yeah, an A above everything else. Um, a flat. Sorry. A flat. Um, and I think it creates this really cool effect because everything else is going on this sort of downward trajectory while it's holding up here and it's just sort of slowly creeping down. It creates a really interesting uh, Look, what, look what's sound. happening in the steel marimba, by the way. Ding, ding, steel ding, marimba. Ding, 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 ding. Oh, is that a hemiola? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, look at that. Yeah. yeah. And, and for those of you listening, hemiola is not a disease. <laughs> <laughs> it is not a disease. It is not a disease. It is a musical disease. technique. It's not a disease. But I it feel not. like it's something that, again, sort of similar to the first movement where we play mm-hmm. through that train station and stuff like that. And it kind of aligns with that sort of sentence that Granger was going with in the beginning with the dream sense of it. This is a dream sequence of, um, of ecstasy and cocaine and and blah 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 right because this is just something it's it's so trippy and it's different and it drives me was he a heavy user i don't think he was but he did have some weird things that he's he's done in his life and i recommend looking it up definitely some weird stuff with his mother i would definitely look into that um god yeah some good stuff but you know you go back to i want to read that line again because you said it perfectly the restful and dreamy but wayward in time like what the what the heck does that mean? Let's let's just kind of break that down. What do you think that means? I think personally, I think, you know, we talked about the first movement being there's an anxiety to it, right? Like maybe not necessarily bad, but an- anxious nonetheless. Mm. But it's purposeful. Yeah. This one now where where there's no anxiety, but there's no direction either. You know what I mean? It's like it's it's just it very much exists right. calmly. But it, it wayward is the word for it. There, there's no sort of. Um, Look at that next line that's below the oboe too, gently, as if from afar. Where is that? Right. Um. It's, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's very wistful. I'm sure Granger has heard that before in, in sort mm-hmm. of a similar light playing with that folk melody. Once again, um, his collection of flowers, as he once said for Lincolnshire Posey, right? So I think that there's a little bit of that in there and definitely this one is the most atonal out of all of them, but it starts tonal and then it just changes, you know, throughout and, and it just sweeps off your feet, you know, and, and sort of mm-hmm. similar with that. What did I else say I write about this piece? Um, and I want to mention, especially with that first oboe, we have this lamenting sound, right? It's almost like it is, we're playing through the nostalgia, but we're also sad about something as well, you know? Because mm-hmm. he could have easily started on the tonic, but he starts on the third instead. And I think that makes a really big difference. I think that that from the beginning, if it was 
I think it would have taken on a different message in a way because the different, the way that we're going differently, it almost feels like we're going backwards in time and getting higher and higher, but like he's starting slow and he's getting bigger and he's kind of moving his way down. And in a way that it feels to me like he's really just stretching and stretching and just seeing how far he can go. And, and something that maybe we can talk about about this movement, because I feel like it is the longest out of all of them, is how he's able to deconstruct the piece and then find a way to put it back together. Because uh-huh. that, for me, is the most fascinating, especially when you have techniques where you say, violin, go, and go celesta, and go piano at whatever tempo you want to go, you know? I think that is a really strange thing. That being my favorite being the way that he draws the lines for the heart players. And I get that heart players are used to that, but that, that just seems absolutely insane. You know what I mean? Just having Mm -hmm. to read through some of these, these changes is absolutely crazy. Um, Especially I feel so badly for the Celeste player who just has to like, just it's, it seems so difficult. Um, It it just, yeah. Well, the the funny the the Celesta, I noted the Celesta, and obviously if you're going to want a dream sequence, you're going to want a Celesta in there. So, yes. I mean, it, it, it fits perfectly, but right, it just seems like yeah. in order to create that dreamy quality, I think you need a lot of, um, mm-hmm. not maybe not necessarily, because, like, you know, he borders between atonality and tonality, like it said in the, in the um, write-up, yeah. and I think that a dream quality has to have some sort of grounding element, which would be the tonality, but then yeah. you throw things in there that, that totally mess with your concept of tonality, which yeah. is the, the playing with the atonality, right. particularly on the celesta. Right. And, and here's where I think he does a really great job. Um, Are we looking at a measure? No, specifically overall, I would say the thing that he does really well, and I think it comes across in a lot of art, which is when art becomes complicated, it becomes uninteresting. But if we're able to ground it in some sort of humanitarian way or some way that we're able to just kind of focus literally on one thing, the melody mm-hmm. is the function of that. Everything else that Granger does is abstract space, you know, undersea water experiences, right? All of that mm-hmm. is so mysterious, but he still is grounded because we still have that very lamenting melody that just is able to just kind of make its way through. And I think right. that is what survives us through all of these things because you can say, okay, Sean, what are your problems with atonal music? And I'll tell you, my problem with atonal music is the context of which we listen to it or the context of why we listen to it, right? Um, the issue being that when we talk about atonal music, there can be really great atonal music, but we have to have a reason for liking it other than saying, oh, listen to all these like these numbers and chords and like what it means to like feel icky and sad, right? You can, uh-huh. you can do that, but how are we grounding that material for the listener to understand why it's important? Right. right. You can really say to a student, like, listen to this Arnold Schoenberg and listen to how shitty he felt <laughs> in this moment, right? And the student will be like, okay, sure. Not as bad as I feel right, right? now. Exactly. Like, he went through some real shit in his life, right? That's a real, mm-hmm. really, oh, just like your, just like your father clock does. But yes. What I what I find so interesting about this this movement is, and why I think it's so beautiful, 
is because it plays along the lines of of questions and and because if we don't if, if we think about it as in this because it, it is it, it is a tonal like that's what that's what that's what obviously Granger was going for. It's an out of body experience, something that you've never felt before. But there has to be a level of where we ground ourselves, right? Uh-huh. Um, again, not to not to debase atonal music because I feel like Joe his Hisaishi has run a t- like we listened. Remember when we listened to the East Land Suite, the symphony? Yeah, yeah, right. There are moments in there that don't make sense at all, but it's still grounded because there are, there are still melodic elements of it that still make right. sense, right? And so we could sit here and then be like, okay, he's doing X, Y, and Z. But the melody is what ties this all together and, and really does build in through some really great writing. And like I said, there's this, honestly, when we get to the, the violin solo and the, and the, and the piano and like the, and the celesta just doing whatever they want to do in that moment, they're just kind of going, all right, you, you, do whatever you want. But like, it, it it feels like it's 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 crumbling, uh-huh. and and it slowly kind of makes its way back together, and then at the end, it just feels like a sinking ship, right? It just kind of like it's just kind of dying away at the end. So, uh-huh. what else? Anything else you want to talk about with this moment? Um. So, you know, in terms of the actual pieces of it, the things that you know stand out. Mm-hmm are you know there's this like massive crescendo that's like halfway through the piece um and if you're not prepared for it you're like okay i'm awake um (laughs) because the piece is mostly very you know i'll say calm but like you know a standard volume it fluctuates here and there and then you get to this part and you're like oh you know it's like oh my god um and something else that i think stands out not long after that is there's this i don't know exactly what you call it it's these long tones with the strings and and the the brass sort of ornament underneath it and it's a technique very much that Williams I think goes on to use mm-hmm. in his music and we you know this is what I meant you know one of, one of the things I meant by saying like you know this is or that you had said about it being a, maybe a predecessor to some film music and we know that Williams had used the concept of atonality just like um just like Joe did so yeah. it was um. Yeah. It's something that I think can you could you could directly pick out of the music where those key elements that make something uh, characteristic of that composer. Right. Um, yeah. And then I have noted what a crash at sixty-seven. <laughs> uh, and then in terms of, of harmony, right. there's this these great stacked chords at. 76 or uh, 75 and 76 mm. and the resolution there the, the chord resolutions are so cool yeah. i mean the chords are huge yeah um and there is a lot of dissonance there but i but it it works and this is where maybe we talk about the jazz element behind it because it would have been considered overly dissonant to some of the listeners of that time but people who have an ear trained to either more modern music or to jazz might find them not as dissonant as perhaps an older audience might right um, I don't know if you, I don't know if you could see where I, where I'm looking at with those chords, but, um, it's, it's a very, uh, personally, I think it has a very pleasing sound to it. And yes, of course, it's not necessarily tonal, but the chord itself standing alone is, I think the, the, um, the impressive part, right? Just the, hearing that chord moving to the next one, 
that that small progression i think is really impressive yeah i think so too and the most impressive for me is just seeing the piece just kind of be be struck by a piece of lightning and just kind of like it just it just like in that moment it's just it's it's like again sort of similar to one the wash of sound is just it's so enormous and there's just there's so much happening and the rhythm is just it's absolutely ridiculous right some of these things like having to play septuplets for trumpet absolutely ridiculous (laughs) right trying to count this crap is unbelievably hard just sort of like how we talked about Harkstaw grain that one time Mm -hmm. trying to read through some of those canons really it's really difficult um but it comes across so authentic and real because again we're grounded in the melody and he's able to use all the instruments in a very specific way um in their earthly manner you know what i mean and it doesn't Mm -hmm. ask so much of the instrument to be so interesting for me but that for me was why I, I thought this was my favorite because it just it just takes on so many different things and the development of it is just, just unbelievable, you know? So I agree. So, yeah. I want to ask it's you interesting. It's... sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Oh god. I just wanted to ask you about Gumsucker's March. Ah, yes. So that is where we're that is where we're moving. Yeah. Which is a completely different kind of piece to the previous two and i actually i mean we we i referenced it at one point and so there are some similarities but the concept of it is very different and i actually think it bears more in common with the first movement okay um i mean maybe you have some similarities to the other movements as well but i mean we move back into simple meter for this last one because it's in uh i think cut time right yeah two two yeah um and right there that immediately puts us in this very like hoedown kind of feel right you know it has this traditional country folk sound to it Mm -hmm. which it makes sense because we're talking about people who live um it was i think in they said in victoria right Mm -hmm. um probably not in the middle of the city although it could have been but the city back then was likely very different than the city now um and this also really screamed to me like randy newman americana Mm -hmm. aaron copeland I mean, very, very heavily. Uh, I th- I think the combination of English, Irish, Australian, um, because even at the time, the Australian, uh, I think, identity mm-hmm. was still very much based in the in the British mindset. You know what I mean? Like they hadn't been there for as long as obviously they've been there now Mm -hmm. because the people writing this were of English heritage as opposed to being of Aboriginal heritage. So, um, not, I, I don't see much of like any Aboriginal folk music and it's not that I would know anybody. I mean, I know it if I heard it, but like I couldn't tell you anything about it. Um, so having said that, then we have those same elements from the second and the third movement showing up in this to give it the the quality and it's definitely not as atonal as the third movement oh definitely not because we're this is much more of a grounded traditional sounding piece because we're back in e major from the second movement right which is actually really cool so there's there's that connection to a second movement right so um but i mean it's a fun it's a fun piece right it's sort of a fun way to uh, to close out the movement and it's not long i mean it's only what is it like uh four or five minutes yeah i think so and honestly i feel like for this one i feel like i'm kind of a sucker for this one (laughs) Um, yeah because 
you know, because it's a gum sucker much. Um, because I'm a some of the sucker for it. Uh, ha, 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 I just got it. So, um, overall, I feel like um, this is his most well-known piece because yeah. it's it kind of it does take on the good feel kind of like Granger piece that most people are like, oh, this is very nice Granger. You know what I mean? No one, no one really yeah. goes and thinks of the Pastoral as as a Granger piece. Like, oh, oh we play Granger by it. Specific. Yeah, no one's no one says, I oh, you know, I want to hum the pastor <laughs> from, <laughs> from in a nutshell. Um, from in a nutshell, exactly. Yeah. They're like, you know what Granger piece I love? The third movement of in a nutshell. <laughs> I mean, I would say that to people because I know you would, because, but as the nerd I am, I feel like that's that's what I would do. Um I expect nothing less. <laughs> that one for me is like, oh man, I listened to that a lot. I listened to that a lot last year because I was like, this is really freaking cool. But for this one specifically, I have a love hate relationship with it. Hating ever so slightly because um I don't like when Granger has to put himself into very strict limits of of marches. But I, I get it, I get it, and I think that's it's it's something that probably he was like I, um he he probably was like I wrote this, let me just put it in there, you know, blah blah blah, you know, it's probably a good ending piece, you know, like obviously the third movement has you in, you know, you're you're crumbling at the end of the third movement, so the fourth movement <laughs> has to find a way to put you back together again, um, and I feel like for me the only I think like the part that speaks to me is the end of the piece. Just because uh-huh. it has this sort of like mm-hmm, sort of like and you can kind of see that in the in the harp part because the harp's going yeah. you know it's like a trombone player but you know I'm trying to I'm trying to and and for those who who are not watching this podcast at home they will know exactly what I'm talking about no but something specifically happening with with this which I find really interesting is the way that Granger is able to just kind of like build the world and the sound and, and kind of like the focus of this piece, which I think is really beautiful. Um, uh-huh. And for me, the reason why I, I like this piece is because it, it takes on that humanitarian value of being different. And again, it kind of, and Granger really does have that home connection to Australia. So he, uh-huh. he writes it about his own people who kind of like take off gum on the trees and suck it during the summer because it's so darn hot over there. But, and I think that speaks to the language and and the way he's presenting his own culture um, and the love that he has with his people. So, Uh and that's honestly what I have about this movement. Anything else you want to share? Um, not that I can think of. I mean, just the simple fact that I think it's an, it's like you said, a nice homage to heritage, but also yeah. very characteristic of where he's from. Like yeah. he felt it was a representation of his home. Yeah, definitely. No doubt. Which I think is nice, but you know, acknowledges a little bit of their, a little bit of their history. Right. Um, and also the, you know, I think as an entirety, like in its entirety, the whole piece, mm-hmm. Um, I think shows a, someone who is aware of where music is going, you know what I mean? Like he, he's conscious of what the next stage is. He's not someone who's like trying to be so radical and out there with this piece. 
But at the same time, he's also like, I'm going to push the limits here. I'm going to, I'm going to see what I can do before people say like, I'm not listening anymore. Yeah. It was really cool. And honestly, he, he does that. He, I don't think he really cares what other people think about his music. And it's very apparent in that where you can be like, okay, Granger is someone who does the, does the strange things. And he's able to do just that much more because the expectations are just so high with music. Like, what else can we do? Yeah. And he's able to just kind of elevate those, those human humanitarian. I can never say humanitarians, right? I mean, this whole crazy, this whole podcast. But I'm just, I feel like throughout the entire repertoire that he presents, it's, it's quite, it's, it's very, it's very grounded within his own sense of worth and and what he thinks about you know with his relationship with folk music is yeah so i agree so thank you my friend i i appreciate you taking a listen to this piece and, and giving your thoughts and, and mind and love to this piece i i feel like it's it's something that i feel like should get some more air time um and i feel like is is definitely something that will be talked about you know and hopefully future and future hopefully performed more because it's such a beautiful piece of music yeah um so i wish you my best my friend and i will see you next time to talk about some proust so and that's the pod in a nutshell that's a that's a pod in a nutshell thank you my friend (laughs) (laughs) all right take care my friend ciao i'm sean rimkunis And I'm Hunter Sagona, and we will see you next time for our traditional end-of-the-year Proust questionnaire. So until such a time as we see you then, remember to keep listening to what you like.